All right, let's go before the Lord in prayer again. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We honor you for all things. We thank you for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this hour that you've granted us to hear more of who he is and what he has done for us and the hope that we have in him. We honor you for all. We shall gather around this message. May you speak to them the truth of Christ. May you help me also to this end. We honor you for all things, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning again, and happy Mother's Day to those who have been given the calling. It's imposed on you. You do not choose it. (laughs) God imposes everything and all things on his creation to his glory. So don't think this is something that you decide to do. And for that reason, it's a blessing when you think of it that the God of heaven determined that this would be your contribution in the matter of raising of the human family. So God be praised for that. And Chicho was born on Mother's Day. Yeah. This morning we are going to be in Romans chapter 6. I had debated on whether to go back to First Samuel yet, but it may not happen until a few more weeks. We need to work the understanding of Romans chapter 6. And we are going to be in verses 1 to 7, Romans 6, 1 to 7. Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, Certainly, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin, and that is the word of the Lord, my Timer is acting up. If we don't get this right, we may be in here until Memorial Weekend. (laughs) For our titles, we have three of them. Shall we sin that grace may abound? Shall we sin that grace may abound? Number two. 
the old man crucified. The old man crucified. And number three, he who has died has been freed from sin. Some of these titles are difficult to shorten because you end up losing what is being said. So I just have to have the long version of it. And I could have had more titles to this. And it's kind of difficult to know where to cut this text because it just continues with the arguments. But I was like, okay, there's already a lot of stuff that has been said in the opening verses. I'm going to just have to force it and stop at seven. But this is what has happened or is happening. Apostle Paul has labored in the previous chapter of Romans 5 to make some important theological connections as to the why and how we found ourselves in the situation that we are in, both as sinners and as the redeemed. Paul is showing us that there is a lot of complexity in the seeming simplicity of the gospel. The gospel is simple in that it is salvation by God's doing alone, of Christ alone and of grace alone that is saying essentially the same thing in a different way. But that does not mean it is not a complex matter. The whole creation is there for the purpose of preaching the one seemingly simple message. It is complex because it is about the complex God whose mind cannot be known by anyone unless it is revealed to them. And my way of saying the same thing is that the gospel has a lot of moving paths. And when we try to handle the many moving paths, that is where a lot of trouble comes. A lot of untruths are told about God, about Christ, about humanity. And you hear Arminians, the free will, I chose Jesus people, say, yes, salvation is by faith. And the Mormons, too, if you go to Utah, you're going to hear the same thing. The SDAs, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Calvinists, the Sovereign Grace, Roman Catholics, who all say to one degree or another, salvation is by faith. But it is in the moving parts of the gospel that God exposes who is telling the truth about the matter. In other words, the devil is in the details. The devil is in the details. So pay attention to the moving parts because they are important to the integrity of the foundation 
That is the gospel of Christ Jesus. Listen to what people are saying. All of these people, if you say Jesus, they're going to hug you. They're going to love you. But the moment that you begin to tell the details of Jesus, that's when all hell breaks loose. Okay? So the apostle would have you and I, by the Holy Spirit, to understand how we became vulnerable to sickness, disease, and death. And it was not because our mothers did not take enough prenatal vitamins. Someone knows about that right now. Or ourselves not taking enough vitamin supplements or not exercising enough and causing sickness unto death. Yes, death is natural. But it is not natural in the sense that men and women ascribe to it. It is not natural simply by reason of age, that when you get old, you die. God has been around much longer, and yet he has not died because of age. Okay? Something catastrophic happened. Sin happened. And sin came by way of a man named Adam. Sin came in by the one man and with it, death. Adam sinned by eating what God had said he should not eat. He said, you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the day that you shall eat from it, you shall surely die. In the day that you shall eat, you shall surely die. And I think that is a wonderful name to have for a tree. You ever thought about that? I should start my own plantation and have a variety of a tree that is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> and I'm sure business will be brisk. The seeds of the tree, I could sell at Home Depot and Lowe's and uh, say, well, the seeds are in aisle 13, okay? But there will be a disclaimer on the packet that says, in the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. <laughs> but in the day that Adam ate from the tree, he sinned and death came with it as God said it would. And with it was also the condemnation. But you have to maybe ask a few questions and say, but how is it that the God of love would not stop Adam from eating from the tree if God cared that much? How can a loving parent who knows the consequences of a child playing with fire leave them to the fire? 
Because if God's love is of the same manner or kind as we conceive of it as men and women, then he was being reckless with his creation and should be charged with child endangerment, child abuse. Why not put a flaming sword and angels around this tree as he did afterwards with the tree of life? Why put the tree in the garden in the first place knowing the consequences of having Adam eat it? He could have put a fence around it and encrypted the password to access it, make it impossible for Adam to access it. No, Adam must eat from the tree. He must eat in the day that you shall eat. There was an appointed day that Adam would eat to begin to unfold the story of Christ Jesus. The story of Christ must be told and it cannot be told apart from sin and that means apart from the cross. Christ Jesus cannot be introduced to his people apart from their salvation from sin. So sin, death and condemnation came by the one man, Adam, and Paul says, and all sinned in him, thus death spread to all men. We all were reckoned to have sinned in Adam. And that means the reality that we experience sin, allergies, sickness, and death means we at one point passed through Adam because these are remnants of what happened to Adam. And death is God's judgment of the sin that ended through Adam by the beguiling of the devil. And the devil in the scheme of the unfolding of the story of Christ was the instrument of corruption. He was and still is a tool in God's toolbox to do God's bidding. If you have a toolbox, you're going to have all kinds of things, nails, hammers, you name it, screws, nuts and bolts. All of creation is God's toolbox for his glorification. Thus, we should not elevate the devil above measure as if he is some really powerful being. Yes, he is powerful in comparison to ourselves. But when it comes to God, no, the devil owes his life to God's power. The devil has no power in himself. He has a birth certificate, <laughs> which means he was created by God, created by Jesus Christ, that's Colossians 1.16, 
and is also on God's leash. God alone is from forever and God alone has power. He is the almighty. All power is in him and comes from him. So Adam has happened, but in the context of this beautiful woman given him by God called Eve, the mother of all the living. But then we have to ask more questions to understand what is being communicated by God. Why did God not make Eve the same way he did Adam? Why not get some more dust, some more clay, and make Eve the same way? It was not because the ground was too too dry for him. It is because the church must be created. It must be made as a bride, a new creation in the death, in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Adam, before Eve was created out of his side, existed in a state of non-condemnation. He was neither condemned nor justified. He alone existed in a neutral position until the woman came and the devil was despised her way to cause trouble. To cause trouble for the woman. So Adam gets in trouble on account of his bride. You see the connections? The woman has to get in trouble with sin. And because of that, Adam also gets in trouble. And that looking to Christ Jesus. Christ is not in trouble of himself, of his own account. He gets in trouble because of the redemption of his bride, the church. But when we say Adam had not yet sinned, we do not mean that Adam was intrinsically a righteous person. Yes, he was innocent as much as he had not yet broken God's commandment as the man of dust. He was innocent as the man of the dust. But soon afterwards, God proved to him that naturally he was not a righteous person. So we should not make the mistake of thinking that being innocent necessarily is the same as being righteous. They are not the same things. Children are born innocent, but they are not born righteous. So talking of Christ, this is what the scriptures say of Jesus. Let's go to Hebrews 7.26. 
Hebrews 7.26, talking about the priesthood of the Lord Jesus and comparing it to the priesthood of the Levites and its weaknesses. Of the Lord, the Holy Spirit says, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. That's Christ. There's no other person born of a woman who was described and can be described the same way. Adam was innocent, but only briefly. But during his time in innocence, he was not holy. He was not holy. He was not undefiled and separate from sinners as Jesus was because of the materials of construction. He was made of dust. We're going to be riding on this for a few long minutes. The commandment to not eat proved that he was not a righteous person in himself. It did not make him unrighteous. It proved that he was intrinsically not righteous in himself. It revealed a weakness in his constitution as the man of the dust. Remember, the law does not make a person righteous. It proves what is already there. It proves who the person is. The Lord Jesus was not made righteous by the law. The law proved his perfection, but it did not cause his perfection. He was already perfect as the God-man. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. And here, Apostle Paul, talking about the resurrection, but he gives us some useful things to ride on for our understanding. First Corinthians 15 from verse 41, from verse 41 to 15. And there was conversation about what kind of bodies do people have in the resurrection and stuff? There's a whole lot of other things that we said, but our interest is from verse 41. Paul says, there's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. Essentially, to say these things are not the same. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption as a sinful body, not as a perfected body. It is raised 
in incorruption. Raised in power. It is raised with a different glory. Incorruptible. It is sown in dishonor, verse 43. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. The spiritual body, like the body of Jesus, that you could handle, you could touch him, and yet he could go through an, an open door, go through the wall, and yet it's physical and it's spiritual body. That's a different kind of construction. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Still, verse 44. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written. The first man, Adam. So the conversation is taken back to the two men, Adam and Christ. In respect of these bodies, the natural and the spiritual. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. See the difference. Adam was just a living being with flesh and blood. But the last Adam was a life-giving spirit. Eschatos, Adam. Last is eschatos. That's where you get eschatology. Things of the last days. And you hear people say, so what is your eschatological position? What is your millennial position? You have never heard me in almost any message talk about my millennial position. Because I think people misunderstand eschatology in the bigger scheme of the gospel. You have the first and you have the last. The last Adam is all of eschatology. The appearance of Jesus is eschatology. The cross is eschatology. Because everything that is happening in the last Adam is the subject of eschatology. It's not about some millennial position. That is less than 1% of what eschatology is all about. It's about the glory of Christ, the appearance of Christ, and him accomplishing redemption. That is what eschatology is. But the last Adam was a life-giving spirit. So right from the start, Adam was never to give life because it was not his and not in him to give You cannot give what you do not possess. You cannot give what you do not possess. Adam could not give you in life because he never possessed it. Dust of itself does not have life. Verse 46. 1 Corinthians 15 again. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. See God's ordering of the human 
existence and experience. The conversation here is being bracketed between Adam and Christ. The natural, that is, the life of Adam must come first and its attendant weaknesses. And that means in the unfolding of God's purpose in Christ. Sin, death, and condemnation must come first. Then afterward, the spiritual is introduced. The spiritual is surely a reference to Christ Jesus. Not as God, but as the God-man. Because Christ was not always the God-man. He became the God-man in time about 2,000 years ago. So the Logos, according to John chapter 1, added flesh to himself. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among, amongst us. That's John 1, 14. So Christ came after Adam had appeared, hence the statement, afterward, the spiritual. So that's, that is the point of reference in the conversation. Verse 47 The first man was of the earth, mad of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are mad of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. So Adam was of the earth. That was the origin of the materials of his construction. His materials were not imported. They were locally assembled. (laughs) He was the man of the dust. And all who are in him are made of dust. And they suffer or succumb to the weaknesses and afflictions of the man of the dust. The dust does not have very good mileage in matters of righteousness. It does not take you far. It breaks down very fast. So all who are in Adam must possess what Adam had in his dust. And it was not righteousness. And it was not life. Righteousness was always outside of him. But the heavenly man, the spiritual man, Christ Jesus, brings or brought a different reality In his appearance, he brings, he brought life. That is the package that Christ brought. And he got in trouble for that by the Jews. Because he said, well, if you don't believe in me, there's no life for you. And all who are in him also bear 
or carry, possess. What is in the heavenly man. That is why Ephesians says, the saints are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So to be heavenly with respect to those in Christ is not about what you do or did not do or are not doing. It is whether God has put you in the heavenly man. It is about your location your identity and your union. Location, identity, and union. You cannot and could not buy a ticket to get you on the heavenly side of things. It is something that is discovered to you by God's grace that he was pleased to count you among the heavenly. In other words, to count you among the vessels of mercy. The gospel discovers to you and me the truth of that, that God purposed to make you a vessel of mercy, to be found in the heavenly man, Christ Jesus, had nothing to do with that. Because it is God's grace and mercy that took you out from remaining in the earthly, in the man of the dust. God is the one who translated you from Adam. Okay? God's grace is what changed your zip code from being earthy, from being dust, to being spiritual and heavenly. Only God has ability to change your zip code in that way. Otherwise, it remains, I'm going to have to find a number for the zip code of the earth. <laughs> but you understand that? God alone changes your zip code. You have no legal right to change it by yourself. And the gospel is saying God has changed your zip code. Now it is with Christ. It is with the heavenly. Verse 49, still in 1 Corinthians. And as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. We have borne the image of the man of the dust in that we sin like him and have come under the power of sin even through death and condemnation just like him. But the redeemed have a different conversation at the end of the day in that they they do not remain dead-ended in the dust. 
the redeemed do not dead end in the man of the dust. We shall also bear the image of the heavenly man in righteousness and in glorification. So those that say salvation could have come to us through Adam if he had just been a good boy, <laughs> had not disobeyed. Only if Adam had a mother to teach him men as well, to not go and steal from the neighbors, <laughs> they do not have the biblical arguments of the gospel together. They have not understood what's going on. There was no way you could have borne the image of the heavenly if you had come to God through the righteousness of Adam. It's impossible. Adam was only a type of the one who was to come in that he represented all men in his condemnation as Christ Jesus would come and represent all of the elect in their justification. Also, in Adam having a bride formed from his side in the matter of the type of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and then God bringing the bride to him and also saying, for this reason the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his bride and the two shall become one flesh. Because Jesus as the Logos is he who had to leave the father to become a man for the sake of his bride, the church. This is in reference to Christ Jesus. So in Adam and Eve, sorry, in Adam and Christ, we have the fundamental matters of union, representation, and imputation. And union brings about identity. Katie was a clerk, but when she got married through the union of marriage, she had a new identity, a Miss Smith identity. Clear? Okay? So that is union, and union brings identity. So when we were united to Adam, we became identified with him in every way. And the end result was this. When we were united, in Adam, verse 50, of 1 Corinthians 15, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption, Flesh and blood, that is what you and I were in Adam or are in Adam. 
cannot, that's impossible, inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what you do to flesh and blood. It cannot. You cannot prepare it. You cannot make it better to make it fit that it may inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. In other words, entry into the kingdom of God was never and could never happen by Adam and by extension, by your own obedience. As you are in Adam, you are corrupt in every way. And out of this corruption, you cannot inherit incorruption. That is eternal life. Naturally, you cannot inherit it. Something has to happen outside of yourself. The God-man must happen. Christ must happen. Who was born outside of the man of the dust. Those who say Jesus had the DNA of Mary for him to be human do not understand what Paul has just said. Do people not know that sin and personal traits are also encoded in the genes. They are. That's how the personal traits are passed on from parents to children. The DNA of Mary was from the man of the dust. And so it also carried the issues and the weaknesses of the man of the dust. It was from Adam And thus was flesh and blood and corrupt. So we need more than a cleaned up version of Mary. The Romans say, oh, Mary was sinless. There's nothing like that. (laughs) There's nothing like that. She was not from heaven. She was of this creation. We need more than a cleaned up version of Mary a dry, cleaned version of Adam for salvation. That's not going to work. It's not going to ha- You cannot dry, clean Mary or Adam to inherit eternal life. It's not going to work. And that to say, Jesus was not an improved Adam or an improved Moses, a panel-beaten Moses, or a panel-beaten, resprayed Adam with just better paint and seat covers. (laughs) Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit to take him out of Adam. Completely. 
the spiritual man proceeds from heaven. And thus had the DNA of God. As fully God and fully man, and this way alone, we have been given the title to eternal life and to incorruption. Christ must be 100% outside of Adam for this to happen. So the Holy Spirit conception of Jesus does not compromise the truth of his humanity. It does not remove the truth of his humanity. What it does is it affirms his qualifications as the perfect redeemer, as the perfect high priest and sacrifice. So those who claim that the Holy Spirit conception means God only provided the spam have a false view of God's power and they want to create unnecessary and uncalled for problems due to the limitations of their own thinking and understanding. And they want to impose their limitations on other other people. And I do not buy those arguments. If Adam was created fully as a human being from the dust and was mad without sperm or egg, how is the humanity of Christ compromised if God made him differently? By the power of the Holy Spirit. God is the template. He's the one doing everything. And with him, nothing is what? Is impossible. Okay? Anyways, let's keep, let's, let's keep moving. So the one man, Adam, sinned and brought condemnation to all men. To all men without exception. But the one man, Christ Jesus, came and brought justification to all who were in him. In other words, these two important transactions of condemnation and justification and their pronouncements were done in just two persons. Each representing their own tribe or clan. Jesus representing the tribe of the elect. Adam, all tribes of man without exception. The many in Christ will be made righteous and they have been made righteous. Not by faith. Faith does not make righteous. But it confirms possession of the righteousness of Christ. It confirms to you in which Adam you are in. It confirms your zip code. 
Are you still in Adam, an unbeliever? Are you in Christ? You are a believer. And you possess everything that is in Christ. And when Paul says, those, the many will be made righteous, he's saying, the many who are in Christ will be declared as righteous in the judgment to come. Based on the righteousness of Christ Jesus. So that statement is not a conditional statement that is waiting for things to happen for you to be declared as righteous. It is an eschatological statement. Looking to the final judgment and saying all those who are in Christ shall be vindicated as righteous by the same righteousness that Christ accomplished by his death. Okay? So it's not a statement that is conditioning salvation on faith. So everything said, Paul says, what is the function? What function does the law play in this matter? Since sin, death, and condemnation already ended before the law of Moses was given. And death was already reigning between Adam and Moses, even on all those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam. The law had not yet been given in its codified form on Mount Sinai, and yet people were already dying. So what is the function of the law? Romans 5, 20 to 21. Moreover, the law ended that the offense might abound. The law ended that the offense, that the transgressions might increase. The law was given to come alongside. That's what is the proper translation of the law ended. It came alongside what had already happened in Adam. Not to arrest or improve the problem but to compound the problem, to increase the transgression, to make sinners more sinful, to make sin even more attractive to sinners. <laughs> because it is fun to break laws when you are a sinner, but that's what sinners do. Yeah? So the matter of law, as we have been preaching on it in the last 10 years, or so, is still not understood by many professing Christians. It doesn't matter how educated they are. Seminarians with PhDs, they still don't get it. Because they ascribe to the law what God did not give it to do. They ascribe to the law things that God only gave Christ to do. They say the law helps them to become better people. It sanctifies them and makes them more righteous. No. The law was given to do the opposite, to increase your sin. That's what Paul says. And to increase God's wrath. 
because of that sin. To make sin more sinful. But by that which is good and righteous, because that's the only way you can make sin more sinful, by something that is good, by causing men and women to break something that is good. The more righteous things you demand of a sinner to do, the more sinful they get. Because now they have a whole laundry list of righteous things that they're supposed to do, but they have no ability to do them. And so they get in trouble very quickly. Okay? So that's what Paul is saying. So the law ended that the offense may abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Grace did abound much more. So God worked it in such a way that as the law amplified sin, he also amplified his grace so that at every moment, his grace was overflowing, was always on top of sin. And so it is hyper-grace. If his grace runs out, and could run out. You and I will be in trouble. Because that means sin would overwhelm grace. And we would not have anything to help us in the time of need. But it has not happened. And it cannot happen that grace would be overcome by sin. Because they're going to be talking to people, they're going to be distraught because of their sin. They think they have sinned beyond redemption. Like, oh, I think God does not like me anymore. Could God still have grace for me? The assumption is their sin was so much that it used up all of God's grace. (laughs) And I've had a number of Popular Reformed preachers say, listen carefully to them, they say it. God is going to run of grace soon. His patience is running out. Essentially that is to say his grace is running out. So make up your mind and run to Christ before it's too late. And when that happens, He will pour out his judgment even on those people that he may otherwise would have wanted to serve because they were just too late in making the decision. So coming to Christ is not like getting to McDonald's drive-thru and placing your order before they close for the night. Like, oh, yeah, drive through McDonald's, closes at one, but I get in there before they close. I hope you're not one of those guys. You used to have a dude. <laughs> when I used to work at McD, you had this van, and you come in, we used to close at 1 a.m., and we did not like the dude. 
because I was working grill and driveway interchangeably. And by one o'clock, we are almost ready to leave. And the dude comes through the drive-through and says, he wants 15 freshly made hamburger patties. I'm like, dude, I just cleaned my grill, man. <laughs> Did you not hear the message? But we are running out of grace here. <laughs> Anyways, that statement sounds righteous. When you say to people, oh, God is going to be running out of grace and or any implications of that sort. It's showing that they don't understand the gospel. God never runs out of grace. Judgment comes not because you were late in making a decision. Okay? But because you were not redeemed by Christ. Judgment comes not because his bucket of grace is empty, because of the people who came in early, or because God's bucket has holes in it because of people's sin. But because he has saved or brought to Christ all who were appointed to eternal life, for none of the elect shall perish. That was Jesus' statement. He will lose none of his ship. His glory is tied to the salvation of every one of the elect. He cannot lose one. Okay? And so all the elect shall never, ever run out of grace. Romans 5.21 So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So sin reigned in death. In other words, sin's reign was in bringing death and keeping sinners under death's power. All the cemeteries are a reminder to all of us of sin's reign. So sin was the king on the throne and reigning. But it was not reigning in life. It was reigning in death. But to rise above death, something greater than death must appear. And what appeared was grace. Grace ascended the throne and deposed sin. And now grace reigns through righteousness, and that is the justification to eternal life. Grace has put eternal life where sin had put death. Grace has put righteousness where sin put condemnation. And that means grace has power. It is more power than sin. And the power is Christ Jesus. Because grace reigns through Christ. 
Grace has emptied the graves of all the elect through the resurrection of Christ. The empty tomb of Christ is not just a testimony of his own resurrection, but of your resurrection and mine. The tomb of all the elect, as God sees it, is empty. You do not remain there. So Christ is he who sits on the throne, reigning in grace, not in condemnation. And that is wonderful news. And grace does not reign. It does not owe its power to our faith. But because of Christ. Faith is a work of grace. It is a gift of grace. It is something that is caused by God. But grace is not a work that is caused by the faith of the redeemed. Our faith, our believing does not cause grace to transfer this way to us. In John 3, John the Baptist says, For a man can receive nothing unless it has been given them from above. In other words, it takes grace for you to receive grace. (laughs) It takes God for you to receive faith. The faithfulness of Christ is what caused grace. His faithfulness, not ours. So what then with all this stuff? And that means all the other stuff was introduction. <laughs> we now go to the text. Because Romans 6 is based on what we've just discussed. Romans 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So the context is Romans 5. That's where this is coming from. That's where the question is coming from. The hearer of what Paul had just said would then be thinking, if this is all true, that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, the natural and sensible reaction For me, if I do my math as a sinner, is to say, well then, let us sin the more. It just makes sense. Since more sin increases grace. What is happening? What is happening is that the message that Paul has just preached is incredible. It is amazing. It is mind-blowing. It is unbelievably good that you have to help sinners to handle it correctly. That is how things stand. It is too good to be true. That the sinner, once condemned in Adam, has been set free 
has been justified from every sin, reconciled and have peace with God, and that they shall not ever come into the judgment of any of their sins, ever. That is incredible freedom. Really, really unbelievable. They wake me up from my dream type of thing. So the natural conclusion then is, let us continue in sin that grace may abound. Let us go hog wild that God will keep giving us more of this grace. Yes, it is true. That grace will always abound over sin. But the conclusion is not appropriate to the message. The gospel could not be promoting sin when Christ was revealed to remove sin. He would not be any better than Adam. He would not be any better than Moses. The gospel alone is the ultimate and the only cure of sin. I'll give you an example, hopefully to help. I used to work at Pandorosa. I have a lot of these stories. (laughs) As a dishwasher when I was in college. I was the most paid person, six bucks an hour. (laughs) on Fridays in the evening they had all you can eat steak buffet and people would come and try and eat the whole cow by themselves like for real (laughs) and what would happen they would puke up a storm and would have steak coming through their nose. I'm serious. I would be called to clean up their mess in the bathrooms. It happened all the time. What had happened? They had not understood the message of all, eat all you can buffet. It was not Eat all you can until you puke. (laughs) Yes, the steaks were abundant. But they had taken the eating to abuse. And in the abuse, they ended up getting sick. It was bad for them. They ended up having a bad weekend instead of having a joyful weekend. And Paul is saying, You have to understand the message of God's grace correctly. Otherwise, you consume it incorrectly and think God was saying, come on, kids, go and sin the more so that I can multiply my grace. And such a message would be contrary to the God who is holy and righteous. But don't remove this. This message is shocking. I'll give you another example. 
of how amazing this message is and why people would misconstrue what God is saying. It is like as a thief learning that all the houses of the millionaires and billionaires have no locks anymore and there's no one to guard them and there's no one to shoot you down and if you go and steal no one is sending you to jail even if you go to the courts you will be acquitted on all accounts no matter how repeatedly you do it you can be robbing these houses Every single day, go to court and be acquitted on every charge every day. So, on hearing that, that all these beautiful homes with all the beautiful things that they have in, they are open to plunder. Like, man, I'm not sleeping tonight. You might get me a trailer. I have to go and rob them. And God says, no, dude, you did not get it. The fact that God has justified you from all your sin, all the sins that you've committed before, does not give you the license to use that justification, that grace as the new motivation for your sins. And Paul is not saying the redeemed do not sin. That's not the argument. That's not the argument at all. It's taken that way by a lot of preachers and professing Christians when they want to nail someone because they did something. That's not what Paul is saying. He is saying Knowing your justification from all things by God as a reality. Do not now use it. Use that grace as your new motivation. This is very purposeful. As your new motivation to give you the energy, the desire to sin the more in the light of the gospel. Because remember, you were sinning already before. Sinning is what you have always done. Sinning is what you do. But what you cannot do is to now use grace as more fuel, as more reason, as more motivation to add, to incentivize yourself into more sin. It's like Sean going to work tomorrow and he goes into maybe a place at their work where they keep a lot of things, things that he could use at home too. He goes in, opens the door, and he piles his car with a lot of stuff from work that he was not given. And his argument when he's confronted is, oh, I'm taking this because of grace. (laughs) 
<laughs> because God has justified me from my sins, therefore I'm going to go and get all these things. That's what Paul is saying. Do not use grace and your understanding of it as your new motivation to begin to do more foolishness. Don't do that. That's not what God is saying. That's what Paul is teaching. Paul said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He ties the new motivation to sin. To the knowledge of grace. Not to just sinning in general, but to the knowledge of grace. So it is a very purposeful sinning that is tied to the knowledge of God's superabounding grace. As I said, Paul is not saying saints do not sin. Because we shall prove that in the messages to come, that saints do continue to sin, even Paul himself, right? But he retorts and says, verse 2, Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? So Paul's rebuttal of the thinking is theological. It is gospel. He says, How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? So there is a group of those that are called the we who die to sin. In other words, the elect. And these who died were cut off. They were separated from sin, should no longer live in it. Those who were separated from sin should no longer live in it. But how is that possible? Because you know you. Paul is using the imperative to not continue in sin in the name of grace to build more gospel teaching. That point is lost in the majority of what you're going to hear from Romans 6 teaching from a lot of pulpits. He uses that to develop more gospel teaching, to develop more of the indicatives. Paul cannot just issue naked commands that are not clothed in indicatives of the gospel. The indicatives are what Christ did. He can't just give you a naked command and say, do this, don't do that. He can't do that. It has to be tied to what Christ already did. So what God has done to redeem the sinner in Christ Those who die to sin do not live in it. That's a legal reality of their standing in Christ. Those who died do not continue their existence in the place where they died. They depart from the realm in which they once lived. So there is a separation. When you talk about death, you are talking about separation. Those buried in the cemetery have died to the life in this world. 
and that they do not live in this world. They do not live according to the commands of this world, though their remains are still in this world. They died to this world. They are not under the power of this world. You do not collect taxes on the dead. Okay? But Paul explains some more. Help us understand what it means to have died to sin. Because if that is not understood, we may have a lot of problems understanding the imperative. Verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? As many as were baptized into Christ Jesus, as many as were immersed, but that's what baptized means, as many as were immersed into Christ Jesus, were immersed into his death, as many as were crucified with Christ, died to sin. That's how you die to sin. What is that? This is bringing the redeemed to the truth of their union and identity with Christ as basis for the command. How were the redeemed baptized into Christ? Was it through water baptism? Even baptismal regeneration, as some people say, which is not true. Or was it by the Holy Spirit? Paul says, the baptism united the redeemed with the death of Christ. What does it mean to be baptized into Christ's death? It is to be reckoned by God as having died with Christ. In other words, God was seeing more than Christ in his death. He was seeing more than the person of Christ. He saw all the elect with and in him as he poured his judgment on Christ. So that in the judgment of Christ was also the judgment of all the elect. So the believer was united by God into Christ's death in the one-time event of the cross. And in this they were baptized in Christ. Verse 4. Romans 6. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. See the movement of the union. It was in death on the cross. It was in burial. And it was in the resurrection. The union. We were united in the death, in the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. We were buried with him through baptism into death. So this baptism is surely not water baptism. 
Water baptism is not what brings union, but proves union for those who are born of God. Here, Young's literal translation on this section of Romans 6, from verse 6 to, sorry, from verse 1 to 4, but with more emphasis on verse 4. But I have to read everything for context. What then shall we say? Shall we continue in the sin that the grace may abound? Let it not be. We who died to the sin, how shall we still live in it? Are ye ignorant that we, as many as were baptized to Christ Jesus, to his death were baptized, we were buried together then with him through the baptism to death. That even as Christ was raised up out of the dead through the glory of the Father, so also we in newness of life might walk. I'm going to read again verse 4. And pay attention to the statement. We were buried together then, then, with him, through the baptism, to the death. Through the baptism. With the definite article, the baptism. A particular baptism. That respected the death of Christ. Here, the Lord Jesus in Luke 12. Luke 12, 49 to 50. Luke 12, 49 to 50. The Lord said, I came to send fire on the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. So the Lord had a baptism to be baptized with. And he was distressed about it. When I was baptized, I wasn't distressed about it. When Katie and Sean were baptized, they were not distressed about it. So that could not have been water baptism. That had already happened for Jesus with John the Baptist. This is way much later in the conversation. So what baptism was Jesus talking about? Let us hear from Jesus again from Mark 10. Let's go to Mark 10, 35 to 40. Mark says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> yes, Jesus, we are the sovereign sinners. Do for us whatever we command of you. Do our bidding for us. Because we are such cool disciples. <laughs> and he said to them, verse 36. And Jesus was being very gentle here, I can tell. 
what do you want me to do for you? He obviously knew what they wanted. They said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. In other words, you're clueless of what things you're asking. You're clueless of who you are. And you're clueless of God's doing things. But first, let me ask you a question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Because that has a reference to where you're going to sit. Are you able to eat, sorry, to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Obviously not the baptism of John. So what cup and what baptism is this? It was the cup of God's undiluted wrath. The baptism of judgment on the cross. God pouring his wrath on Christ was the baptism. And they said to him, we're able. <laughs> like dudes, whatever you're drinking, you need to add more water to it. But it's too strong stuff for you. Yes, we're able. The dudes are in delusion. But yet they told the truth in their delusion. And the Lord will explain how. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism, I am baptized. With you will be baptized. But how? Theologically, in the Romans 6 way, being united to him in his death. These were elect. Yes, they may have died through crucifixion too, but their crucifixion was not the pouring of God's wrath on them. It was not at the same level, at the same level as that of the Lord Jesus. It was not salvific. So God did not pour his wrath on James and John. So the real sense in which they drank the cup and baptism and the baptism of Christ was through being united to his death, which is a thing that we celebrate when we have communion. They drank the cup through union with Christ. They were baptized into the baptism of Christ through union in Christ. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And the right hand was prepared by God. Okay? End of story. They were not going to go there. And so Paul would then say, going back to Romans 6, Therefore, we were buried with him 
through the baptism into death. So this is a very specific reference to the cross. This is where the transaction happened. And of this transaction, spirit baptism unites us by faith. That's what faith does. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He unites us to that reality through faith. And of course, we also were united to Christ through election because that's the only way we would have been in union with him on the cross because we were elected in him. And the water baptism then testify of that truth as a picture of those that have been given faith by God. So these things are connected, they're related, but in a different way. And Paul continues, says, continues and says that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. So the believer died to their relation to sin in the death of Christ. That's how you die to sin. It is not talking about you stopping doing anything. You have to make that understanding. The death of Christ is the event, the only event that separated you from your legal relation to the sin that you now commit. To the end that you should walk in newness of life. But how new? How new is this life? What is this life that you are walking in newness of? Is it new shoes? Is it a new job? A new house and a new boyfriend. That's how it's preached. No. The newness is in the new creation of being redeemed from the condemnation of sin, of being removed from Adam. That's the newness of it. You have been removed from everything that would have condemned you in Adam. That's the newness. Adam was the oddness of the life of sin, of death and condemnation, in which sin reigned unto death. So the newness of life, just as walking by the Spirit, is not cursing anymore, though you should not. The newness of life and walking in the Spirit is walking in the truth and knowledge of our justification and reconciliation to God in Christ. That's the newness of it. It is not saying a wrinkle-free life. Far from it. That is not the argument. Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory, by the power of the Father. 
The statement is useful to your understanding of what is being said. Christ raised from the dead. Dead. So the believer also raised from that state of deadness, of condemnation by the Father through Christ. Christ dead, raised by the Father to the newness of the life of Christ glorified, or the redeemed raised from the deadness of Adam to the new life in Christ. The life of justification and eternal life. That's the newness of the life. So Christ to a new life from being condemned and being justified as the righteous son of God to a new life for you and I of not being condemned in Adam and being resurrected to the new life of justification in Christ. So the redeemed walk in the newness of the life of Christ as gospel believers, possessing the life of Christ, abiding in the testimony of Christ, and testifying of Jesus as Lord and Savior, and as seated on the right hand of God, because he made an end to the purification of sin. So there's union and identification at play. Verse 5. For if, for, the better way to say that is for since, not for if. For since is better than if. Because if sounds conditional. Since is stating the reality of things, that this is how they are, they happened. For since we have been united together in the likeness of his death, we were united with Christ in his death, but our union and benefit does not end there. Certainly, we also shall be in, in the likeness of his resurrection. So our union and identity with Christ, it goes all the way from death to burial to resurrection. Okay? And this part of the verse again is an eschatological, excuse me, is an eschatological statement. Because the resurrection is future for all the redeemed, according to 1 Corinthians 15. We shall be resurrected in the same manner as Christ was resurrected in power as we read in 1 Corinthians. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So the old man was crucified with him. I'm going to bank on Young's Literal Translation again. You can find the Young's Literal Translation online. It's free. Verse 6. I want to repeat that from his translation of the same verse. 
He says, this knowing that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of the sin may be made useless for our no longer serving the sin. Paul says the old man was crucified. The old man was crucified. And a lot of people come and say, well, that means your old life was crucified before when you came to Christ, that's when the crucifixion of your old self happened. No way. <laughs> that's not the context. We have to bank on Romans 5 for the identity of the old man. Who is the old man who caused us trouble because of sin? It has to be Adam. He was the first man, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, and that's the old man. But what was crucified in the old man was Adam on the cross to be crucified. If you go read Genesis, it says Adam, I believe 930 years or so, and he died. So how did he find himself on the cross? Through imputation. Through, through imputation, Adam found himself on the cross being crucified. And I'd ask a question. What was crucified of the old man? It was what was in Adam and the relationship that we had with him. It had to be severed. It had to be cut. And what was in Adam? It was sin. It was death. It was condemnation as Paul discussed in Romans 5. So when were these removed from all the elect? Are they removed from the elect when they come to faith? Or this happened in a one-time transaction? Paul says it happened on the cross. Okay? So it happened when Christ was crucified, not when the redeemed believe or believed. Christ was crucified with all of his elect. But what does crucify mean? There's just a lot of teaching in this. That's why I was like, okay, so where do I stop? <laughs> what does crucify mean? It means to kill by hanging and thus making powerless. To kill and make him powerless. But powerless to do what? To condemn. Because that which is crucified if you have a person who's going to fight you and they have a knife and they're crucified, do you think they're going to be able to fight you? No, because they can't get down. They may have a knife, but they can't get down to use it because they're crucified. They've been disabled. They've been made powerless. 
So the old man was crucified with him so that the body of sin that condemned you may be made useless. That it may be done away with. But how is it made useless? Remember, sin was reigning to death. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, what is the power of sin? What gives sin power? It is the law. The power of sin is in the law. What does the law require? The law requires death of anyone who does not obey it perfectly. So what is the only way to make sin powerless? It is to pay what you owe. It is to pay the debt and give perfection to the law. You pay the debt and you give perfection to the law. And how is that done? Turning off your TV? (laughs) No. Mourning about your sin? No. By the obedience of Christ. The blood of Christ, the propitiation, the satisfaction of our sins. So Christ alone is the satisfaction to the law due to sin's problems. And when the law was satisfied, God's wrath propitiated, the law lost its power to condemn through sin. And consequently, sin also lost its throne. <laughs> Once sin cannot condemn, it has lost its throne. Sin is still on the throne for the unredeemed, but not for the elect. So in this way, the body of sin, which was on the throne and reigning unto death, was crucified. This is indicative stuff. This is what Christ did. This is how you died to sin. This is how you don't live in sin anymore. It is not saying you do not sin anymore. It is saying as you stand perfected in Christ, God reckons you as someone who does not live in sin anymore in spite of the reality of your sin because of the two persons, Adam and Christ. That's what Christ has done for you. He put you in a legal state where your sin has no more power to condemn you. And in that regard, you do not live in sin. Okay? Here, Paul, Galatians 2, for closing. Let's go to Galatians 2, 18 to 20. The apostle says, Galatians 2, 18 to 20, But if I build up again those things I once destroyed, 
What is that saying? What is trying to build up the things that he tried to destroy? It means trying to commend oneself to God through law keeping. Bringing back the law and imposing it on those that Christ has set free from the law. Commending yourself through that which was destroyed by Christ's fulfillment through death. That which puts sin back on the throne. The law puts sin back on the throne. When it is Christ who was supposed to be on the throne. So you are building again that which was destroyed. Paul says, I demonstrate that I am the one who breaks God's law. I'm the lawless one. Claiming to keep the law is actually breaking the law. Why? Because you're bearing false witness. But this is the truth of the believer's relation to the law. How does the believer relate to the law of God? Verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I may live to God. Those things cannot happen at the same time. You cannot live to God and still continue to be under the law. It's not going to happen. You have to die to one of those things. And Paul says, through the law, I died. I was separated from the law and everything associated with it, which is sin, which is death, which is condemnation. But how does one die to the law through the law? Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. So Paul is saying the same thing in a different way in Galatians 2 as he is doing in Romans chapter 6. The cross is the way to sever this relationship, to cut it, to separate it for the redeemed. The law had Christ crucified. It is the law that had him guilty. And in that, that paved a way for a new and legal marriage to Christ. That's Romans 7. Because if you are still under the law, you are with a different husband and you cannot marry to Christ. You cannot be married to Christ. One of the marriages has to break. Okay? You have to get a certificate of divorce from the law through the death of Christ. And this is a matter that a lot of people don't get because they end up exalting their marriages to the point that they fail to understand what God is teaching about marriage and divorce. It is about the gospel. The divorce is divorce from Adam, is divorce from Moses, that you may be married to Christ. We shall develop it. We are going to be in Romans 7 soon. But Paul says, through the law, I die to the law. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
So if Christ is living in you, you are not under the law because Christ is not under the law. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, not in the law of Moses who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 6, 7, that's our last verse and we should be done. Paul says, for he who has died has been freed from sin. He who has died has been separated from sin. Set free from the realm or domain in which sin lived and had power. Been set free from sin as a slave master. The person who is in jail, serving 30, 40 years, the moment that they die, they've been set free from their experience in jail. Death has become their way of escape. That's what Paul is saying. That's what death, that's what the death of Christ did for all the elect. It freed us from the enslavement of sin. So sin here is pictured as the slave master, as the imprisoner. That is the underlying graphic. And Paul is saying, a slave, which is a picture that the people that he was writing to would have understood clearly, that a slave only gained their freedom through death or if they had money to buy themselves out of their slavery. Okay? And the words has been freed. Those words, they are a loose rendering of the Greek word that means has been justified. For he who has died has been justified from their sin. And we already died in Christ. And also, the perfect tense of that, the perfect tense is the tense that communicates completed actions. The perfect tense of this word describes a past action, a past action, but with a continuing effect, past but continuing. So the believer was set free and died to sin in the death of Christ, but that dying to sin continues in its effect in your justification and is still in force even now as it was when he died. And it continues into eternity. You were justified when Christ died, and you continue to be in that state of justification all the way. So that to say sin has no longer the legal right to force its mastery and control on a believer because he or she died with Christ, especially the mastery of sin in condemnation. Once sin has lost power to condemn, it's useless. It can't do anything to you. 
in that regard. Okay? And that's the level of discussion. A few questions as we close. But when did you die with Christ? Is it when you believed or when he died? Obviously when he died. So when did God reckon you as having died and freed from sin or justified or declared as righteous? It's when Jesus died. So knowing all that, the Holy Spirit says, do not use God's grace as a new motivation to increase and justify your sinning. Okay? And again, as I said, there are a lot of moving parts. And Paul has essentially been discussing the indicators of salvation where you would be expecting him to give you a list of do's and don'ts. He actually takes that commandment and he flips it to discuss more the gospel. You're not going to find that kind of preaching in a lot of these pulpits. This is an opportunity for them to hammer you to death. Okay. <laughs> so this is the truth of the matter. You're a sinner and you're going to sin. And that is why God saved you by his grace alone. And because of that, stop the incessant introspection of your sin because it's going to leave you feeling condemned, feeling unsaved, and also it dilutes in your conscience the beauty of God's mercy and his grace. And we end up seeking medication for our problems, medication, however it comes, and not looking to what God has said. There's not a single person who is not sinning and a Christian who is not dealing with sin at one level or another. There's not a single person who is not dealing with sin in some way. No problem has overtaken you, but such is common to man but God is faithful, right? Who with each temptation will give you a way of escape. So we must strive by God's grace to understand God's arguments so that we continue to rejoice in God's salvation and not in our hopeless naval gazing. There's a lot to be said. And so be paying attention and be learning and amen. And this is going to be our introduction next Sunday. <laughs> but there's just a whole lot of things to open up and join together. So God be praised. We are done. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these many, many words that we have learned about our relationship to Adam and to Christ and how we as the redeemed have died to sin and walk in the newness of life, the newness of the life of Christ, of not being condemned in Adam. I pray that you cause your people to see the freedom that Christ has given us. I pray and thank you, Lord, that we should not and would not use the grace of God 
that we may approve of things that should not be approved of. And Lord, you know all things. You know the frame that we are but dust. You know our weaknesses. And may your grace continue to abound. We pray and honor you in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, God's people. Have a wonderful rest of the week. And be praying for me for strength and for more understanding that edifies God's people. All right. Bye-bye.